Hey, good day to you. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falk It Around podcast. It is a Tuesday, and tonight, apparently, I guess, I think, I hope, we're going to have Tuesday night football. And it's not only Tuesday night football, it's Buffalo Bills football. So after a strange week, and the NFL, and we've obviously talked about this a lot on the podcast, has made their determination that they are trying everything they can to get this season in within their 17-week confine without adding a Week 18. They do have a week built in between the Super Bowl and the championship games. Traditionally, the Pro Bowl is played there. The Pro Bowl isn't played this year. There's going to be like seven people pissed off. So that's the 18th week of the season there if needed. You put an 18th week in at the end of the season to make up games you aren't able to refinangle the schedule and make things work that way. And in doing so, you slide all the playoff games back one week, collapsing that two-week interim period between the championship games and the Super Bowl down to one week, and you've got that. So the NFL has got that in their back pocket. And, and you know, I've read a lot of people say there is no contingency. And to me, that's their contingency. If need be, and they have to go back a week further, if you think about it, traditionally, the city that hosts the Super Bowl has a huge dilemma in that if anything were to happen, their hotel rooms have been sold out for years, all the things that have gone on to get that weekend, that Super Bowl weekend, and whatever host city it is to happen, you can't move it. Well, this year, there likely will be very few fans, if any maybe a third of the stadium full. That means that the hotel room situation, the travel situation, flights, all the things that go along with it, aren't that big a deal. So to move everything back another week to potentially go with a week 19. Again, I just explained how week 18 happens. To week 19, I don't think it's a deal breaker. The NFL is convinced they can get this in. I think the way they're handling things to this point has been pretty impressive. The fact that they're able to move around eight different games, essentially. Eight teams were affected by how they move things around. The Bills, of course, were caught in the eye of the storm that is the Tennessee Titans COVID outbreak. But tonight in Nashville, the Bills and Titans are going to play. And then Sunday, the Bills will play the Chiefs. Of course, the Bills were supposed to have played the Titans Sunday, and then the Chiefs on Thursday night football. Tonight's Tuesday. We get Tuesday night football. We don't get Thursday night football. That's okay. Is what it is. And many people are saying, well, the Bills got a disadvantage now because of the fact that they're on a short week to play the Chiefs, whereas the Chiefs have a full week to play the Bills. Well, the Bills also have the advantage of a little bit longer rest in between tonight's game and being able to fully practice where – The Titans, who have not been able to get in their facility because of their positive COVID tests, they have not. So this season isn't about fair. It isn't about equitable. It's about we got to get it in. And, you know, if you look at what's gone on in the other sports since COVID happened, the bubble worked for both basketball and hockey. And we're going to certainly talk about LeBron winning his fourth. But the fact that they worked in a bubble was incredibly impressive. Baseball decided an opposite approach. approach. And what was interesting to me about that is 
the struggles that they came up against early on with the Marlins and the Cardinals and a few other teams who were shut down. And th- Now, baseball, you're able to make games up through doubleheaders, and you can't do that in football. You simply can't. But baseball got it in. They stayed the course, adjusted to what came up, and I think that has given the NFL their blueprint. All right, we saw what baseball did. They didn't overreact. They didn't pause the season. They didn't stop. They paused teams that needed to be paused. See the Tennessee Titans. That's what the NFL has done. And they move forward when possible. And, and the Patriots are, have been caught up in this as well. But tonight the Bills and Titans will play. And as of a few minutes ago, WGR in Buffalo reporting no new positive tests this morning for the Titans, so everything is a go. This is going to be an important football game. You take The lead-up is all about the COVID and the scheduling and all those things. But if we start to look at the reality of tonight's football game, the Bills and Titans have played over the last couple of years some very close football games. and they, These two teams seem to be very similar. The Bills have won three of the last five, but the Titans have won the last two. And every one of those games was a one-score game. So I anticipate again tonight a very close football game, one that could go either way, and one, frankly, that I think the Bills have to look at is extremely important. The Bills play the Titans tonight. Titans are 3-0. and They play the Chiefs on Sunday. Chiefs coming off a loss to the Raiders are 4-1. and those two teams, along with the Ravens, along with the Steelers and Browns, that's the strength of the AFC. And when it comes down to it, the Bills are 4-0. They have big aspirations. Those aspirations are going to include potential tiebreakers. Now, what I do think is going to happen is that the NFL may adopt a bubble system for their playoffs which I know many people in Western New York will not like. But I think to make sure, because once they get to the playoffs, cannot have COVID moving games around. It it can't happen. So I believe a bubble system will be in place for the playoffs. One city gets the AFC, one city gets the NFC, and then obviously on to Vegas for the Super Bowl. That won't change. But I think that's what's going to happen to ensure that the playoffs aren't COVID-affected. That said, these tiebreakers are still extremely important. With the additional playoff team added this year, there's only one bye this year. So you look at the Bills-Chiefs, the home field may not mean as much because you're not going into Arrowhead or playing at, oh, what are we calling it now? Carl Stadium? No, Bills Stadium. Bills Stadium. Very inventive by the Pagulas there. Too bad they couldn't sell it to somebody for naming rights. Can we call it uh, Ralph Wilson Field, please? Thank you. Ralph Wilson Field would not be the same without fans. Arrowhead won't be the same without fans. Baltimore, all these great Pittsburgh, all these great home fields, not going to be the same. And even, you know, Pittsburgh let some people in last week. You're getting a third of the people in. All of these things aren't going to be the big home field advantage. Now, you may get a weather game, and maybe that's where an advantage comes in, but I still think the tiebreaker portion is very important because of matchups. And and think about it. Last year, the Titans go into Baltimore. It's a bad matchup for the Ravens because if the Titans get the lead, they pound that big horse in Derrick Henry, 
and take Lamar Jackson out of his game and force him to play a different game. That's what happened. It was a bad matchup for the Ravens. So tiebreakers create matchup issues, and, and tonight's game is a huge tiebreaker situation, and so is Sunday's in a different way against the Chiefs. The keys to tonight's game, to me, are very simple for the Bills. they got to keep it rolling with Josh Allen. He has been so good early on in this year. Let's hope that the last week the focus hasn't shifted. and the, That's the one thing I worry about with the Bills. This has been a strange week. Practice interrupted. No practice on Friday. Are we going to play? We're not going to play. We might play the Chiefs. All of these distractions, how do they come out tonight? How do they come out of the gate ready to play? And how does it affect Josh Allen? He's going against a very good Titans defense. And with the loss of Matt Milano, who will not play, and I've said it a few times, Milano, in my opinion, is the Bills' best defensive player, most important defensive player. He is going to be a key loss tonight because Derrick Henry. If Henry gets going, the Bills are in trouble. And the key to me is Josh Allen playing his game. If the Bills fall behind, and they've largely played from in front all year, if they fall behind, they don't need to panic. They have the ability to score. The one thing the Bills haven't shown the ability to do is finish an opponent when you have them down big. They've allowed opponents to get back in the game, and maybe they've taken the foot off the gas offensively. This is a learning experience for a young team and, frankly, an inexperienced head coach and offensive coordinator. I say inexperienced. They've been around a couple of years, McDermott's fourth year. They haven't been through these big games time and time again. You look at a guy like Andy Reid, been there, done that 100 times. Nothing's new to a guy like that or Belichick or Sean Payton, the guys who have been around. These Big games when you've got an opponent down and how to finish an opponent, something Sean McDermott and Brian Dable need to do a better job of figuring out. I think they will. I think they can. And it's just a matter of experience. And they've had some experience early on. Now use that to their advantage. Allen tonight needs to be aggressively smart. Yes, that's something I just came up with. He needs to play aggressive. He needs to take shots when they're there, force the ball at times. He's not going to get a lot of easy looks. The pass rush from the Titans is going to be a problem, in my opinion. Because of that, he needs to use his legs. No hero ball, but at the same time, if a tight window is there, make the throw. And trust your mechanics, trust your coaching, and trust your arm. And I think Allen does all of those things. What he can't do is take the bad sack like he did against the Raiders that can't happen those are the plays that bad Josh shows up to me holding on to the ball too long is a problem because it creates potential fumbles it's a sack I'd much rather you throw it on time to a receiver who may be covered and let your guy make a play and the Bills have receivers now who are able to make a play for Josh Allen so Allen needs to be aggressive. He needs to stay the course, continue on doing what he's doing. Now, I said he needs to be aggressive and take chances. Can't turn it over. And I'm not talking about one interception. If he throws one pick tonight, which will be more than he's thrown all year, I know there's one statistically 
on his record. But let's face it, that was a completion of the tight end that should have been called back by penalty. But for some reason, it was ruled an interception. Still don't get it, but whatever. If he throws one tonight, I won't lose my mind because, again, he needs to be aggressive. But what can't happen is the fumble. When you're escaping the rush, take care of the football. When you're running the ball, take care of the football. Motor Singletary had two fumbles in one game last year, four overall. Can't have that game against a team like the Titans. The Titans offensively are going to do what they do, and that's Derrick Henley. And to me, for the Bills defensively, and this makes it very tough without Matt Milano, Terrell Dodson and A.J. Klein are both going to see a lot of time. Dodson's a good young player. I don't know what his ceiling is, but I think his effort is there. He's made some impact. Klein's a problem and not a good problem. You know, nowadays, if you say somebody's a problem, you give them a compliment. I'm not giving A.J. Klein a compliment. The best thing about A.J. Klein is he went to Iowa State. He played football there. I like the Cyclones. They're good this year. Look it up. But A.J. Klein against Derrick Henry is, is a problem for the Bills' defense. If Henry gets rolling, then that makes Ryan Tannehill's job extremely easy. To this point this year in the three games the Titans did play, Henry's been over 100 yards on average each of their games. Tannehill's completed over 70% of his passes. It's cause and effect. To me, the Bills have to sell out however you can to take away Derrick Henry. I know there's been a lot of talk about the Bills bend but don't break defense. I don't think you could do that against Tennessee because Derrick Henry is going to break you himself. This is a game to me where you put the onus on Ryan Tannehill, and if he completes 75% of his passes and Corey Davis and those guys have big plays downfield, so be it. You got beat by their second-best player because Derrick Henry is the best player. The coaching matchup tonight's interesting. Vrabel and McDermott, both, again, inexperienced, newer head coaches, both guys who their teams believe in. And that's as important of a thing, and we're going to talk about coaches in a few minutes, but that's as important of an aspect of coaching as any other. If you hire the right people and your players believe in those people and allow those people to coach and just do all those things and the players buy in, you're going to win football games. If you're skeptical and you don't believe in your head coach, see the Detroit Lions or the New York Jets, you're not going to win football games. It's just not going to happen. So Vrabel versus McDermott is an interesting matchup because both of these guys have built a culture. They're very different cultures, frankly. Vrabel's much more of a rah-rah, I'm going to come over there and kick your ass myself type guy. McDermott's intense and positive. They're, They're two different personalities, but I think they have a similar approach as to how they handle their football teams. And what I, I need to see tonight is the fact that McDermott needs to be better in game management. And, and I've said it for years, whether I was on the radio or on the podcast, I am not impressed with only one aspect of Sean McDermott, and it's his game management. He's bad at clock management. He's bad at timeout usage. Expect there to be a defensive timeout tonight that, in my opinion, will give the Titans an advantage. And there will be a bad challenge if it's a tight football game. These are Sean McDermott staples. 
He's got to coach better in tight games, and I expect tonight to be a tight game, and tonight's an important game. Here's the other thing. Tonight is the Bills coming out party, and frankly, it's the Titans coming out party too. Titans won playoff games last year, and a lot of people paid attention to what they were doing, but I think this year it's more of the can they do it again. Ryan Tannehill got a big extension do we really believe in Tannehill as a quarterback of a playoff-winning franchise? So for the Titans, it's a chance to show everybody, yeah, Tannehill can be that guy, and we're going to beat a good Buffalo Bills team. For the Bills, this is their first national look, if you will. I know a lot of eyeballs were on the Raiders game last week, especially due to the cancellation of the Patriots game. But this is a primetime game on a Tuesday night. There's baseball tonight. There is no more basketball. There is no more hockey. So there's going to be a lot of eyeballs on this game. It's not just going to be regional. It's going to be national. Are the Bills ready for primetime? And are the Bills ready to play against the teams that in January and February they need to beat if they want to get to where they hope to go? And that's this game tonight, Sunday against the Chiefs, and the games coming up against the teams that they will compete against for the playoffs so this is a big one tonight I do think this game is going to go down to the wire I expect it to be a mid-20s game I don't think it'll be in the 30s if it's in the 30s frankly I think the Titans win I think if either team gets to 30 I'm looking at the Titans 27-24 tonight over the Bills hopefully I'm wrong by that but I just don't see without Matt Milano how the Bills can slow down Derrick Henry. And if that's the case, if Henry gets off, then I expect Tannehill to absolutely come up big and make a couple big plays down the field to loosen up things because the Bills' pass rush has not been where it needs to be. So I talked about coaches, and I talked about the fact that there's a lot of young coaches right now that are trying to find their way, and we're already two coaches into Black Monday. Black Monday's the first Monday after the season ends, traditionally, when coaches get fired. And generally, each year between six and eight coaches lose their jobs or get, if you want to be an optimist, six or eight new coaches come in. Quarter of the league, traditionally, is turned over at the coaching point. Well, we've had our second coach dismissed and our second GM, frankly, Last week, of course, it was Bill O'Brien who was the coach and the general manager of the Texans. He's out. This week, it is Dan Quinn and Thomas Dimitrov of the Atlanta Falcons. The Falcons had an opportunity a couple of years ago to win a Super Bowl. They had a 28-3 to lead, as we all know, to Brady and the Patriots. And the Brady-led Patriots come back and win the game in overtime. And what I remember most about that Super Bowl is not necessarily the Patriots – coming back the way they did. And it was a miraculous comeback. It really was. Maybe the crowning achievement of Tom Brady's illustrious career. But what I remember about that is, at the time, these young Falcons, with their MVP candidate quarterback, Matt Ryan, their great young offensive coordinator, who was soon to be the head coach in San Francisco, Kyle Shanahan, if they had run the football just one more time in the fourth quarter, late in that fourth quarter, they win that game. Kyle Shanahan calling the plays, did not do that. Incomplete passes, stopped the clock, sacks happened. And because of that, 
Brady and the Patriots took advantage and win the Super Bowl. Shanahan, fast forward, goes to San Francisco, and a lot of people buy in to him. And a lot of people are already crowning him. As a matter of fact, this year, before this season, coming off a Super Bowl appearance, he ended up getting his six-year extension. Kyle Shanahan's career record is three games under five hundred. A lot of times, decisions are made on coaches too soon, in my opinion, both positively and negatively. Go back to the Cleveland days, Bill Belichick. When he was there was the last time the Browns started 4-1. and one. And then the next year, the sale of the franchise ended up dooming the Browns and dooming the career in Cleveland of Belichick. Obviously, it goes to New England, the rest is history. But we draw judgments on coaches very quickly, like quarterbacks. Dan Quinn got a great run. He had a long run. It was time. This is a defensive guy whose defense was the worst in the NFL. Well, actually, I think they're only second worst. I think the Cowboys are the worst defense in the NFL. But over the last couple of years, he's given up close to 25 points a game on average. That's a defensive head coach. Thomas Dimitrov has been there since 2008. He has built a lot of nice pieces, especially on the offensive side of the ball, whether it's Julio Jones, bringing in Calvin Ridley. Even this year, you look at what Todd Gurley has done in that offense. He's been a very solid addition at running back. But you've got to build both sides of the football. And Dimitrov simply hasn't been able to build a defense. He hasn't been able to bring in free agents on defense. He hasn't been able to draft well defensively. So because of that, they are both out. And Atlanta's a team that, in my opinion, is going to undergo a massive facelift. Matt Ryan was Thomas Dimitrov's first draft pick. He was the first overall pick. Well, a new regime that comes in may look at Matt Ryan and say, this isn't the guy we need going forward. Matt Ryan's an old-school quarterback. He's not going to beat you with his legs. He's very simply a guy who is a drop-back quarterback. So in the new NFL I'm sure modern thinkers aren't going to look at him and want him to be part of it. So maybe they start over at quarterback as a way, of, too, of restructuring their salary cap. When, when a new regime comes in, and think about what the Bills did when Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott came in, the first thing you do is gut the salary cap because you've got a couple years to play with before the fans have expectations. So you turn the roster over, take cap hits early, Get spots available to build your draft and build your free agency and then go forward. I would expect that to be the case in Atlanta. The problem is whoever goes there to coach, you're in a division that I think is as good as any division in the NFL, not named the NFC West. The second best division in football, in my opinion, is the NFC South. So it's a very tough spot. Matt Rule, the new guy in Carolina, is doing a great job. Bruce Arians is going to get it done down in Tampa. They're going to be a tough out. And, of course, as long as Sean Payton is in New Orleans, the Saints are going to be a tough team. So we're down two coaches. Somehow, Adam Gase is still employed. Somehow. Don't understand that. Never probably will understand that. And the fact that he's still there has got to be more upsetting to Jets fans than anything else. 
And then, of course, Matt Patricia in Detroit, a guy who, in my opinion, another member of the Belichick coaching tree. These guys think they could come in with the cachet and respect given to them because of where they've come from, and it just hasn't worked. Bill O'Brien's the most successful Belichick disciple, and he's currently out of work. So it's, it's always been a problem for people coming from New England to coach elsewhere. We'll see where it goes from here, but I think we'll be down four coaches before this season plays itself out. The other big story on Sunday was the injury to Dak Prescott. And, you know, this was one that when you look at the Cowboys team this year, the defense was historically bad. The defense through five games has given up 180 points. Let me do the math for you. 36 points a game against. When you look at the Cowboys team, Jerry Jones has always been a star power guy. And they've got three first-round pick wide receivers. I shouldn't say three first-round because Michael Gallup was a third. But three very good wide receivers. They've got Ezekiel Elliott in the backfield. Before the season, the offensive line looked fantastic. And then Travis Frederick, who was arguably the best center in the league, retired. Leal Collins and Tyron Smith now, they're all pro tackles, are out for the season. So the offensive line is a mess. But through all these things and the defense being bad, Dak Prescott had put up huge, huge numbers. Sunday, he was playing well again until an innocuous play put his foot on sideways. Disgusting. I I hate that. I know some people enjoy seeing broken bones. I can't stand it. I don't know why people think it's smart to tweet out a picture that half the people on Twitter are going to hate seeing. But that's what happens. You know, you get the gratuitous, look away if you don't want to see it. You know, why are you showing it? Why do we need to see this? The reaction to Dak Prescott was very telling. Jason Garrett, the former Cowboys coach who happened to be on the sideline as the Giants OC on Sunday, came out to give his thoughts to Dak, you know, at that point. To see Dak's emotion, the the pain he had to be in had to be severe. His teammates couldn't even look at it. It was an emotional thing. It really was. And Dak is a guy who seems to be universally liked. And you saw that with the tweets around the league. Now, a lot of the tweets centered around the fact that Dak Prescott did not sign a big long-term contract this offseason. Instead, was playing on the salary cap, or I'm sorry, the franchise tag. He was going to get, and will get, $31 million for this year. $31 million is a boatload of money. It is generational money. It's a lot of money. And I read you know, people talking about the fact he was playing on a franchise tag. So what? He got $31 million this year. Okay, I agree with that. He did, and that's a ton of money. But he also didn't get $120 million or $80 million guaranteed, like a lot of other quarterbacks around the league are going to get or have gotten. Dak Prescott didn't get that. As a fourth-round pick who played out his rookie quarterback, he only made a couple million dollars on that contract. The Cowboys had the benefit of their quarterback playing 
at a very high level for a very low salary, yet still couldn't get it done and couldn't win games. Dak Prescott, his future is very much murky at this point. I won't say in doubt because he's had surgery. Likely he'll be back and be very similar to the player he already was. The question is this. If he couldn't come to an agreement with the Cowboys pre-injury, now there's a question as to his health. Do they get a deal done? And while all these emotions and all these reactions are coming in, Jerry Jones issued a statement that said he looks forward to Dak being a quarterback of the Cowboys for a long time. And I wasn't sure about that. But I want you to listen to Dan Orlovsky of ESPN explain what he thinks is going to happen going forward to Dak Prescott. I don't think there's any chance that Dak Prescott plays anywhere else but Dallas next year. And I would not have said that Saturday. On Saturday, I would have said, see what happens with the season. The expectations are really high. He's he's had some struggles in the first half of games. After that moment yesterday and watching that team respond to him and their emotion, there is no chance that he is not back as their starting quarterback next year. Whether it's the franchise tag or long-term extension, that first snap is going to be taken by Dak Prescott. And I think the reality is this, like, for Jerry Jones, how much does leadership actually matter to you? Like, what's the price tag for leadership and what's the price tag for culture? Because I know this, that place is better with Dak Prescott as their quarterback when it comes to that stuff. And I just feel this way. If they don't bring him back, that'll break that organization. It'll break them. Because I can't imagine being a player and watching what I saw on the field yesterday on a team, on that team, and then Jerry Jones going, nah, we're better off with someone else. I'm better off bringing someone else here. So I think as tragic as yesterday was, it proved a lot to me that he's the, the, the absolute bona fide franchise quarterback for them. Before I react to what Dan Orlovsky said, I got to point out that two guys who never shut up, and in my opinion, I never want to hear them speak again, Mike Greenberg and Rex Ryan, both had to shut up and listen to an intelligent man speak for about a minute. That had to be incredibly painful for those two guys. But they make a lot of money and get to talk a lot on ESPN, so good on you. They're winning. Look, Dak Prescott, I think his character – I think his person may be better than his quarterback. His quarterback is very good, better than I had anticipated him being, much better. Nobody saw Dak Prescott when he was drafted in the fourth round as a guy who was going to be a franchise quarterback. Otherwise, he would have been drafted in the first round. But he has become that. question is, does Jerry Jones cave in to Dak and give him the money that he, Dak, thinks he deserves? Or does Dak now look at this injury and maybe say, you know what, I need a little bit more security. I'm going to take a little bit less, maybe overall, and some guaranteed to get myself a little more security in case of an injury. So we'll see what happens with that. Justin Herbert, speaking of quarterbacks, looks really good. If you watched the Monday night game last night, four touchdown passes for the rookie from Oregon, This is a guy who I think is the new modern NFL quarterback. He's a lot like Josh Allen. He's inaccurate, and the last two throws of the night were behind receivers, including the fourth down one, was forced 
the receiver to make an adjustment. Mike Williams that didn't allow him to get the first down, but he's got his his legs are better than you'd think. His ability to throw the ball a long way. He's raw, but he's he's exciting, and I think the Chargers have their quarterback of the future already. It was impressive what he did last night, even though his kicker screwed them. And it seems the Chargers, it's always the kicker, isn't it? Always, doesn't, isn't that always what happens with the Chargers? Their kicker misses misses extra points, misses field goals. The Chiefs losing on Sunday, and I haven't heard anyone say this, but I wonder if this is part of it. If you watched the game, and I did, I watched the entire game, and it was a fun game to watch. Seeing the Chiefs early on, they were business as usual. A couple deep shots to Tyreek Hill, one call back from penalty, one for a touchdown. They had some things open. Kelsey was very good. Sammy Watkins scores a touchdown. When Sammy Watkins got hurt, to me, it seemed something changed in the Chiefs' offense. And I think the fact that, yes, Pat Mahomes, Patrick, sorry, Mrs. Mahomes, Patrick Mahomes is so special. But I also think the fact that you have Kelsey, you've got Hill, you've got Hardman, they all bring different things. But having Sammy being a route runner has been a huge underrated part of this offense. When you took that out Sunday, things changed. Now, I'm not saying Sammy's an all-pro receiver and finally worthy of the fourth overall pick that he was chosen with for the Bills, but this is a guy who I think does some things very well that allows Mahomes to have that fourth option, and that fourth option oftentimes is the difference because you can't cover everybody. You simply can't take everything away. So you make sure you don't get beat deep by Hardman and Hill. And over the middle, you've got to cover Tyreek Hill. Well, who's left? And without that, the Raiders were able to blitz and were able to pressure Mahomes. He wasn't the same guy in the second half. It was a very pedestrian effort. It's a big win for John Gruden and for the Raiders. Not only did their defense come up big. And I don't want to make it sound like I'm not giving the Raiders credit. Henry Ruggs is a lot better than I thought he'd be. His speed is very impactful, similar to the way Tyreek Hill's speed is impactful to the Chiefs. His long touchdown, it's just they got to do that once or twice a game. And if your Derek Carr is playing good football, throw it as far as you can. If you overthrow that guy, I'm going to tip my hat to you. But do that one or once or twice a game, keeps the defense honest, and who knows, if you hit it, you get a big play for nothing. I mentioned the Jets are 0-5, and they are a team that is going nowhere. Sam Darnold's hurt. I don't know if he'll play this week or not. Joe Flacco is in at quarterback. It doesn't matter who plays at quarterback. It doesn't matter anything about this franchise until they get rid of Adam Gates and decide on a direction. It's pointless. You're throwing stuff against the wall and hoping it sticks, but the players haven't bought in. They're 0-5. They're going to be in the conversation for the first pick overall. I watched Trevor Lawrence play Saturday against Miami. That kid is special. He is as good as any college quarterback I remember seeing. He reminds me of Andrew Luck. And Andrew Luck was the best college quarterback I've ever seen. Peyton Manning was good. Luck was better because he was more athletic. And Lawrence 
is more athletic than Peyton. I'm not saying he's going to be a better pro than Peyton Manning or better pro than Andrew Luck, but if you're drafting a quarterback, everything about Trevor Lawrence is what you want in a quarterback. He's that good. The Jets, if they get there, that means Sam Darnold's got to go because you don't have both of them, in my opinion. You could have Sam Darnold there for a year to tutor, but I don't think Sam Darnold knows enough to tutor anybody. So trade him. Get a second-round pick. Get another player back with that. Continue to build going forward. But the interesting thing to me about a guy like Sam Darnold is the, the quarterback scrap heap used to be something that wasn't very good. If you didn't have a quarterback, man, you had to trade to get one. It's often been said the NFL can only take what colleges give them. Well, the innovation of the spread offense in college football means that no longer is it a running back's game, just like the NFL. So quarterbacks everywhere from peewee football on, on up are throwing the ball 30 to 40 times a game. It means quarterbacks are better by the time they get to college. They're better by the time they get to the NFL. Listen to what quarterbacks I think will be available next year. If you're looking for one and you don't have a draft pick that can take either Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields. Jameis Winston signed that one-year deal in New Orleans. Cam Newton is on a one-year deal in New England. He's been playing great. Dwayne Haskins has already been benched and demoted to third string in Washington. He might be moved before the trade deadline. Actually, Sam Darnold may be moved before that deadline as well. You've got Josh Rosen playing a backup role in Tampa. There's still teams that thought he was the best quarterback coming out a couple years ago when that great quarterback class with Josh and Baker Mayfield, Lamar Jackson, was going on. Then there's the veteran guys. And one veteran isn't really a veteran, Daniel Jones, but if the Giants go 0-5 or go 0-16 or 1-15, they may move on from Daniel Jones if they have a chance to tra- take a new quarterback. I can't believe Dave Gettleman survives this, and Daniel Jones was Dave Gettleman's pick, so he might be out. Mitchell Trubisky is likely out in Chicago. I, I don't know what value he has, but if you're looking for a backup quarterback, there's worse places to go. I mentioned earlier Matt Ryan, Andy Dalton, who's going to have a chance to showcase himself now with the Cowboys for the rest of this year, and Phillip Rivers. And i got to talk about Rivers. Indy brought him in as a guy who they thought was the final piece of the puzzle. Watching Phillip Rivers last year in, in, in L.A. with the Chargers, he makes so many bad decisions. He doesn't have the arm strength he used to have, and he never had a, a cannon of an arm. He had a good arm, but he was able to read things and get the ball there quickly enough. Now he's lost a little off his fastball. And his other fastball, his brain, I think overreacts too. He took a bad safety on Sunday, threw a pick six. He is costing the Colts games. The Colts made a decision to go with this guy. And I I actually wonder how much longer they stay with him if this continues. It's going to be a very tough year, in my opinion, for the Colts if Phillip Rivers continues to play as poorly as he has. The only way I think they can change that is quite simply by running the football more and allowing that very good young defense to win games for him. 
In other words, take the quarterback out of the equation. If you're going to do that, why not just go with Jacoby Brissett? That's the same type of thing. Now, they may be a team, too, with the trade deadline coming up. Who knows? One of these young quarterbacks may get dealt. And if that's the case, Phillip Rivers may not finish the season as a starting quarterback in Indianapolis, something to keep an eye on. So that's our NFL breakdown for the week. Major League Baseball, uh, another Hall of Famer has passed away. My God, heaven is putting together one hell of a baseball team. This time it's Joe Morgan of the Reds. And he came up as a member of the Astros, was traded to the Reds. But great second baseman for the big red machine, a great analyst for ESPN on Sunday Night Baseball for like 20 years. Joe Morgan was a guy, everybody, when I was a kid, I grew up in the 70s, everyone imitated Joe Morgan because he used to flip his arm when he batted. And I don't know why he did that, but he did. It was a timing mechanism of sorts, but everyone mimicked it as if you were a kid. Joe Morgan passing away yesterday at 77. Brock, Seaver, Gibson, Morgan, Whitey Ford. It's just been unbelievable the number of Hall of Famers recently that have passed away in in Major League Baseball 2020, a year that just won't stop. But hopefully January's coming, and I've never looked more forward to January than I have this year. The Braves have been what they were all season, a very good baseball team. Max Fried last night shut down the the Dodgers offense. Freed's a very good young lefty. Freddie Freeman, one of my favorite players to watch, hits a bomb last night in his first at bat. They got another home run later on. The Braves are a fun team to watch. Young, maybe before their time right now, and maybe the benefit of the 60-game season that way, but this is a team that's going to be around for a long, long time. And I think this series with the Dodgers is going to be epic. This one may be something that we talk about going all the way to Game 7. I think that these two teams are a lot more evenly matched than most anyone thought. And the the Rays are now up 2-0. said it last week when talking about the Rays-Yankees. The Rays are a team that just does everything the right way. And they're continuing to do everything the right way. Great defense. You saw it yesterday. Timely home runs. Zanino and Margot hit home runs yesterday. Charlie Morton gives them five shutout innings. And that bullpen, give me an inning. Come out, give me an inning. And, and they do it time and time again. Well, most people in this area, in the Rochester, New York area, are Yankee fans, statistically. Not everyone is, but they're the most popular team by far. And the Yankees, they once again are bounced they lose a game five to the Rays on Friday night. Garrett Cole, their $320 million pitcher, did his job. Game on short notice, did his job. And people raved about it. And I won't rave about an ace who's paid like an ace who does exactly what he's supposed to do. Now, if he'd gone out and thrown up zeros, I might rave about it. But Garrett Cole, I'm going to grade tougher than, say, a Charlie Morton. Because nobody's paying Charlie Morton. million. Cole did what he was supposed to do, and he was a great player for the Yankees all year, just like he was paid to be. Problem is, there's not enough of that with this Yankees team. And I think the other problem is, is the approach. Major League Baseball has gone to the home run 
or bust philosophy. But if you look at the teams that are left, there's four teams left. They all have guys more than capable of hitting home runs. Each team has a guy who can hit 30 to 40 home runs in any given year. But they're not all big boppers. They've got guys who play the game the right way. The Astros have a bunch of guys who play the game the right way when they're not cheating. And I know that sounds funny, but it is true. They do a lot of little things well. Talked about the race. They do all the little things well. Even the Dodgers. You, you look at Bellinger, but there are so many other guys like Justin Turner who will hit behind a guy, move a guy over. All the little nuances that seem to be a lost art in baseball. And, of course, the Braves do all of that stuff exceedingly well also. The Yankees, they've got guys who hit home runs. You know, the major league leader in home runs this year was Luke Voigt, who's about the seventh best home run hitter on this Yankee roster. So how do you retool if you're the Yankees? Well, I put together somewhat of a blueprint of how to do that. First thing you do is Gary Sanchez has got to go. He's simply got to go. And JT Riamilto, who's the best catcher in baseball, is a free agent. If you're the Yankees, you go get JT Riamilto. Whatever it costs, you go get him. You put him behind the dish. Your defense is improved. He's not a home run hitter, but he's a heck of a hitter. And you, he can run as well. So your athleticism of your team is improved. Your defense has improved. And your offense has improved in a different way. So I, JT Rimulto is the first thing you do. First base is DJ LeMahieu's place. Luke Voigt, stay, wait for it. I'll get to that. LeMahieu goes to first base. He needs to be re-signed. And you have to figure out a way to re-sign him before he gets to free agency because he is their best player. So you re-sign LeMahieu, but you move him over to first base. You move Glaber Torres back to second base. He's a much better second baseman than he is a shortstop. He is worth the patience of what he went through this year. And, again, this year you kind of have to look at it differently because it's 60 games. In a traditional year, if you have a bad 60 games and a good 120 games, you've had a good year. You didn't have that opportunity this year. Glaber Torres will be fine. But move him to second base. At shortstop, I want you to bring in Francisco Lindor, who's certainly going to be available for trade this offseason. And you lock him up to a long-term deal. Yes, you've got the young kids down in the farm to do it. Make that deal. Go get Frankie Lindor. Sign him. Your shortstop position is then set going forward. Gio Urshela at third base. Now all of a sudden you've got a very good infield defensively as well. We already improved the catcher position defensively. I just approved the infield position as well. In the outfield, left field, you're not going to like this, but as Giancarlo Stan, he's not going to be tradable, still owed something like $210 million for the next seven years. He's going to be there. Center field is Aaron Hicks. He's still got about eight more years left on that bad contract with him. He's a very good defensive player. He's had some timely hits, but he's such an all-or-nothing player offensively. I just don't think he's the best case scenario in right field where Aaron judge plays. And here's where it gets interesting to me. You've got to trade somebody. You've got to move somebody. You can't have a lineup filled with softball players. So with a guy like 
you've got essentially three softball players for two positions. You've got Luke Voigt, Giancarlo Stanton, and Aaron Judge. They're all the same guy, except for one of them has more value than the others. Luke Voigt is still seen as, can he do it year in, year out? I've never believed in Luke Voigt. He had a great year this year, and you can argue he was the Yankees MVP. I don't think he can do it again, but at the same time, neither will another GM. Another GM is not going to give up a ton for a guy like him because they don't believe in him. The body of work hasn't been there over a period of time. So you have to keep Luke Voigt, and he becomes your primary DH going forward. Well, that means you have to move either Stanton or Judge, and I already said that Stanton's untradeable. Aaron Judge is the Yankees' most popular player. He is far from their best player. He is a good baseball player. He's also 28 years old. He's not a young kid. He's not going to all of a sudden get better and be more healthy and hit 330 and and play the game differently. He is what he is, and that's fine. And if you have Aaron Judge in the middle of your lineup, you've got a very good team. So now I talked about Francisco Lindor. You send Aaron Judge back to Cleveland for him, plug Clint Frazier into right field. Yes, your defense didn't get better because of Frazier over Judge. As a matter of fact, it got much worse. But I think offensively you're staying the same. This year – Frazier had a higher OPS and about 50% more at bats than Judge. So you're, you're talking about guys who are similar offensively, I think, extrapolated over a full season. Judge also has cachet. So you include him in the Francisco Lindor deal, along with prospects. The Tribe get a good outfielder, which is a position of need that they have, and they get a, a guy – who they could sell tickets for because everyone loves Aaron Judge. And I know this goes against whatever Yankee fans believe, is how do we trade a superstar? Well, Aaron Judge isn't a superstar. He's a superstar in New York because he hit 51 home runs as a rookie, or 52 home runs as a rookie, and captured the imagination because when he hits it, they go a country mile. Fun to watch. He's just not a great player, and he can't stay healthy. So you get what you can get for him and improve your team elsewhere. The other thing you got to do is you look at the rotation. Cole will be back, and he'll be great. You hope Luis Severino comes back from the Tommy John. Jay Happ, you keep him around. He had a pretty good year this year. He's serviceable. Jordan Montgomery is only going to get better. I like what I see from that kid. And then you go out and you sign Trevor Bauer. And he may be the antithesis of the Yankee way, but I don't really care about the Yankee way. I don't really think that's something that you're going to look at and you're going to say, well, you know, he's a little bit outspoken. No, who cares? This is a different era. Give him the ball every fifth day and get out of his way. He's a very good pitcher. And I think having the money now freed up from Masahiro Tanaka's albatross of a contract, that's just a horrible deal. And one that, if he hadn't hurt his elbow, probably would have been a great deal. But it's been a bad deal over the last couple of years. He just hasn't been worth that money. Reappropriate that money towards power, and you're able to get it done. So that's how I fix the New York Yankees. A little bit more interesting of a team. 
much better defensively and younger and faster with guys like Lindor and JT Riamulto. I, I think it's a way to get back to where they think they belong. They, it's been since 2009 now. It's been a long time since the Yankees have been there. All right, next up, I, got, I can't believe I got to do this. I got to say something good about the Buffalo Sabres. The Sabres shocked the hockey world in the midst of signing guys that are going to play on their third and fourth line or maybe in Rochester and look at it, letting guys go who may eventually become good players elsewhere. They went out and signed one of the best free agents on the market, Taylor Hall comes over as one of the fastest skaters in the league. His, he was one of those guys who was a number one overall pick. Ralph Kruger, who coached him in Edmonton, was a huge part of why he came here. And, you know, this kid, look, Sabre fans are desperate. They, they are desperate for a winner. They need somebody to believe in. Taylor Hall may be that guy. And if you think he may be that guy, listen to this. Buffalo, Taylor Hall here. Uh, it's been a crazy past couple days for me, but uh, I can't tell you how excited I am to be a Buffalo Sabre, and, and hopefully I get the chance to play in front of you great fans sometime soon. Uh, I was going to smash into a fold-up table for my intro, but it's probably safest if I don't. Um, hopefully we get back playing hockey again sometime soon, but until then, go Bills. Yeah, that'll play in Buffalo. That'll play very well. Now, he may end up on the top line with Eichel and Skinner. That moves Dylan Cousins back a little bit, who's the other big addition this year. Maybe take some pressure off him. Look, their top six offensively is good enough. You're now pushing a guy back to your third line, which will improve that. The problem is still, and has been, Defensively, they're substandard, and in goal, they're non-existent. I don't know how they get better in goal going forward, but they need to figure that out. The thought of the Sabres making the playoffs seemed far-fetched, but maybe now with another big offensive weapon and that speed is going to provide opportunities for those around them, maybe – they sneak into the playoffs this year in spite of their deficiencies on defense and in goal. So good signing for the Sabres. LeBron James won his fourth title, his fourth playoff MVP. His fourth time winning a championship was different than all the others because of so many things. The Lakers get back there. I want you to listen to what LeBron said when he was handed the MVP trophy. And then I'm going to react to it. Um, means a lot. It means a lot to represent this franchise. Um, Jeannie, I told Jeannie when I came here that uh, I was going to put this franchise back in a position where it belongs. Um, her late great father did it for so many years, and she just you know took it on after that. And for me to be a part of such a historical franchise is... Uh, it's an unbelievable feeling, not only for myself, but for my teammates, for the organization, for the coaches, for the trainers, everybody that's here. Um, 
We just want our respect. Rob wants his respect. Coach Vogel wants his respect. Our organization wants their respect. Laker Nation wants their respect. And I want my damn respect, too. I want my damn respect, too. Uh, LeBron, respect is earned, and you've certainly earned it. You don't need to ask for it. Now, I'm guessing that's a reaction to him only getting, I think, 10% of the first-place votes for the regular season MVP this year. But the, the unlikable part of LeBron is just that. LeBron James is, at worst, the third best basketball player in the history of the game. At worst. You know, you'll hear people, LeBron's no Jordan. You know, even after game five, LeBron made a perfect play, draws four guys, kicks out to Danny Green for a wide-open three. Danny Green barely catches iron on the thing. And the next day, Twitter's yelling at LeBron, Jordan wouldn't have done that. Yet, I remember Jordan hitting Paxton and Kerr and Craig Hodges, and those guys all made the shots. Jordan was lauded because he made the right basketball play. LeBron makes the right basketball play. The guy misses the shot, and everyone says, just shows LeBron's not a champion. LeBron isn't Michael Jordan. I've always thought the better comparison for LeBron was Magic Johnson. I thought their games were much more similar. Jordan was never the passer LeBron is, and LeBron was never going to be the shooter that Jordan became. But the fact remains, LeBron's now been in nine finals and won four championships with three different teams. It's an incredibly impressive resume. LeBron has done it with very good players in Miami, one great player in L.A., and me, you, and a couple other dudes in Cleveland. Yeah, I know Kyrie was there, and Kyrie was a big part of that game, but Kyrie, what's he done without LeBron? Ruined the Celtics' chances. Uh, got to Brooklyn, where he and KD are allegedly going to help coach because you don't really have a coach anymore. Steve Nash isn't really the coach. He's just that guy, which I thought that was interesting. But yet LeBron, he doesn't get the, the respect because of things like that. Saying, I deserve, I want my damn respect. Who doesn't respect LeBron James? 17 years in the league, one of the greatest careers simply ever in the history of the game. It's just amazing what he's done. Winning four titles, four playoff final MVPs. Literally, you rank rank players any way you want. And how many guys can you make an argument that you're putting ahead of LeBron James? Michael Jordan? Okay. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, maybe? Maybe Magic Johnson? Maybe? I don't know who you put ahead of him. To me, it's Jordan and then LeBron. And if that's a lack of respect, I I can't help you. You're one of the best ever to play the game. We don't need you to beg for our respect or or demand our respect. You played a great series. I was so annoyed when he said that. I want my damn respect, too. You don't have it? Maybe there's a reason why. And you'll never figure out that reason because you simply don't get it. It's not about basketball. 
Basketball's taking care of itself. It's the rest of it. Just a little tip for you, LeBron. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next Tuesday with another Falcon Around. Have a good week, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.